Wow, that's tall there. Last week, we praised God for David and Donna Larson's daughter coming out of captivity in in Israel. She's here this morning, and so we thank you. Thank you. Let's uh, give a hand to God for delivering this. Wow, that's great news, great news. Troubled couple couple weeks, hadn't it been? Very difficult. And uh, we've seen things that have divided the world, is dividing churches, dividing people's opinions, very strong opinions on what is going on with Israel. Uh, Much too complicated and broad a topic to address fully, but I want to focus on two questions this morning. Uh, very briefly, very briefly, giving you the Goodyear blimp view of, of these topics. But uh, the, the questions I want to talk about, does Israel belong there? One of the big issues is, uh, for at least for folks in the Middle East, is Israel doesn't belong here. Uh, and the second question, is there a future for Israel? Does God say anything about the future for Israel? This is not a political speech. I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm trying to make clear a couple of things from the scriptures, uh, which all scriptural expositors don't agree on. So even if you talk to three theologians about Israel, you're going to get five different opinions, all supported by scripture. Absolutely. Uh, And and, uh, so I'm just confessing. I, I hold what I hold. I think what I think based on the weight of evidence on some of these issues, not on proof. Because some of these issues, if somebody came up with a proof, the discussion would go away because all the people who are studying these issues are biblically-based people, but they read some of these passages differently, and trying to put them all together can be very complicated. So I'm going to be speaking primarily from the Reformed tradition, which is primarily what Presbyterian churches uh, believe. And maybe on another time we can talk about some other biblically-based views of these issues. But the first question is, does Israel belong there? Is this Israel's land? Well, I want to go back to our scripture reading this morning is uh, from Genesis chapter 12. Where God said to Abraham, Abram, this was before his name was changed to Abram, uh, to Abraham. He said, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abram traveled through the land of Canaan. The Lord said to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So the first of these uh, promises, of this, this promise in chapter 12 which was later turned into a covenant in chapters 15, and then again in chapter 17, God said, those promises I made to you, which are recorded in chapter 12, I am now turning into a covenant. I'm putting my name on the line, God said. I am guaranteeing these promises to you. Chapter 13, verses 15 through 17, 
God said to Abram, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Chapter 15, verse 18 of Genesis. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the Nile to the Euphrates. So the land Israel occupies is a very small portion of the total land that God had promised. Chapter 17, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And there are 10 more references. Well, there are many references, but 10 references specifically that talk about the land to Abram's heirs, this, uh, and, and God addresses himself there in those passages about the land, the land which I swore to you by your, your fathers, your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Always Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you can read it as Abraham, uh, pardon me, as Isaac, not Ishmael. Ishmael was, Abra was Isaac's brother. And he was the firstborn. And according to the law of Hammurabi, which governed Mesopotamia in those times, the firstborn was the primary heir. And God said, I am breaking that tradition and telling you that your secondborn, Isaac, would be heir to the land. God said to Abram, I will bless your son Ishmael, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son. You will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, which we know today as the Arab nations. So Ishmael, you're Abram's firstborn. I'm going to take care of you. But my covenant that I made with Abram, my covenant is through the secondborn, Isaac. My covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah will bear with you, bear you this time next year. And then the blessing was passed from Abram down to Isaac and then down to Jacob, not Edom. Pardon me, not Esau, not Esau. Esau was Jacob's brother. Now, uh, Isaac did bless uh, Esau. And he's the father of what we read later, the Edomites. And so he gave him a nation. But the covenant was passed on not through, once again, the firstborn. Esau was the firstborn. Jacob was the secondborn. God once again said, it doesn't matter. The code of Hammurabi is not what rules my sovereign decisions. The blessing goes through Jacob not Esau. May God Almighty bless you, God said to Jacob. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given, given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who guarantees Israel this land. Okay? 700 years later, the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years after 
uh, Jacob moved them down there. And God came to Moses and said, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. So regardless of what various governments say about Israel being able to live in their land, giving them permission to live in their land, after the Babylonians carried the Israelites off to, uh, to Babylon, the Persians gave them permission to go back to their land. After Titus the Roman in 70 AD destroyed the Jerusalem temple and drove the Jews out of Jerusalem and took their land away from them. It wasn't until 1948 that the Jews were given permission by the British to go back to their land. So it's not about governments giving permission. The sovereign God said, these are my people. I have promised them, and I have made covenants with the descendants of Abraham, the descendant Isaac, not Ishmael, the descendant Jacob, not Esau. This is their land. Governments, Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, are like a drop from a bucket, like a speck of dust on the scales. Governments come and go. Governments make human wisdom-driven decisions. The sovereign God, creator of the universe and creator of the earth, said this chunk of the earth <laughs> belongs to my people, Israel, to your descendants forever. So does Israel have a right to the land? According to the sovereign ruler of the world and the universe, Yahweh himself, yes, this is their land. This is their land. So as we pray for Israel and pray for them to be able to be comfortable and live peacefully in their land, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Israel. Pray for the health and the safety of the Israelis and the Palestinians so that there's peace for God's people in the land. It's their land. The second question is this future for Israel. Pardon me. Is there a future for Israel? This business of the blessing. I will bless you, and I will bless all peoples of the earth through you. Now, most Christians understand that blessing, that blessing the, the whole world, all the inhabitants of the earth, through Abraham's descendants is a direct outcome of the son of Abraham named Jesus. Many, many generations later, this Jew named Jesus came to earth so that we could all have release from sin and live a new life. But what about Israel? What about the rest of Israel? Well, I, 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 so many places to talk about that. I try to zero it down, try to narrow it down uh, to w one spot. And I'm, I'm working now through uh, uh, Romans chapter 11. If you, if, if you look at the outline of Romans, Romans 9 through 11, Paul focuses in on Israel. The first uh, 10 chapters, 
he's been talking about salvation, what it means. He talked about how we're alienated from God by sin. And he talks about how Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for sin so that we can have a personal relationship with God by having our sins forgiven, by trusting the, 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 the sacrificial work that Jesus performed for us on Calvary and in the resurrection. He's outlined all that. But then he comes in chapter 9 and says, but what about Israel? He said, my heart aches for my people Israel. Paul was a Jew. So he's writing to the Romans, the Roman church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And he's trying to explain to them what God is, what's God doing with Israel, who seems to be alienated. Gentiles were coming to Christ in droves. The Jews were still combating it individually and as a corporate uh, entity. The, the Jews were, were violently opposed to Christianity because it violated their most basic rule. Behold, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall have no other gods before you. And these Christians are claiming that Jesus is God. How can that be? We can't possibly. We oppose that. We fight that. We persecute that. Because it can't be true. And Paul said, that's, that's what's going on there. So in chapter 9 through 11, he said, let me explain how this works. I strongly encourage you, especially during these days when so many people are talking about Israel, to read the book of Romans and to zero in on Romans 9 through 11 to get a sense of what, what uh, Paul, under inspiration of Scripture, is talking about uh, with, with uh, Israel. And what he said is, I will bless all people on earth through Abraham's descendants. So looking at chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, he tells us that Israel's present situation at that time was that God had not rejected them, but he had blinded them to the gospel. Paul asked this question. I ask then, did God reject his people? His response, meganoito. That's a strong that's almost pretty close to a bad word. Meganoido. No way. God has not rejected his people. And then he gave four pieces of evidence to substantiate his claim that God had not rejected his people, even though it appeared that he had. I mean, they were this little vassal state and, uh, under the Roman rule, and, and these were supposed to be God's proud people, sons of the covenant, children of Abraham, all that kind of jazz. And they're just a bunch of goofy little people living in this little obsolete corner of the Mediterranean. It appeared that God had rejected them. The Gentiles were coming to Christ in droves. The Jews? No. Has God just... Well, he said the first bit of evidence that God has not rejected his people is, I'm an Israelite. <laughs> what about me? I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, a very proud tribe in the, among the 12 tribes. And I'm a Christian. God hasn't abandoned me. So there's one piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence is theological. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. God made a covenant with Abraham that he would bless Abraham and his descendants forever. And God does not go back on his word. How could God reject the people he made, uh, he made promises to and then made two covenants with and sealed it with, with, with circumcision so that forever the Jews would understand that they are God's. God did not abandon that covenant he made. And then third, he talked about this, this uh, 
uh, a biblical incident back when Elijah was a prophet. And Ahab and Jezebel were the, the king and queen at the time, and they had moved Israel into, into rank idolatry. Up until Ahab, uh, the Jews were guilty of worshiping God using idols, which they shouldn't have been doing. But under Ahab, they were actually worshiping the idols. Not just using idols to worship God, but they had abandoned God and worshiping the idol. And, and Elijah was deeply disturbed. You know, if you don't know the story of Elijah, fascinating story. But Elijah came to God and said, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who's still worshiping in all Israel. I'm the only one. And God said, no, no, chill out, Elijah. Yeah, calm down. I got you. Got you covered, Bubba. There are 7,000 people in Israel who are worshiping me. And this was the introduction of a thing that we then begin to find more frequently in the Old Testament, this thing called a remnant. And he said there are actually two Israels. You've got national Israel. The mass of people of Israel have abandoned God. They're worshiping idols. They're not worshiping God. But within national Israel, there's a thing called a remnant, a group of people, a group of Jewish, a group of Israelis, who are faithfully following God. And that's the beginning of this concept of how do you define Israel? How do you define Israel? In fact, Romans, uh, Paul said in Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. There are a lot of people who are born ethnically, they are of Israel, but they are not of the true Israel. Because they have abandoned what makes Israel Israel in God's eyes. It's like a lot of people go by the name Christian. But they've never accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. So within this mass of people who name themselves as Christian, there are those who say, I am born again. I am a Christian in the true sense that the Scripture teaches about being Christians. So under Elijah introduced this concept of a remnant. Paul said in Romans 9, 6, it's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So there are two kinds of Israelis. Is that making sense? So that idea began way back with Elijah. And then the, the fourth piece of evidence, so Paul, Paul wrote, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So just back in Elijah's day, so it is now. Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, came to us and we murdered him. That's how people think about Israel. But Paul said, even in our time, there is this remnant. There's me and there are thousands of other Jews who worship God through Jesus Christ. So there's still this idea of national Israel and spiritual Israel. Paul wrote, circumcision is not a matter of the flesh. Circumcision, the symbol that makes a person a Jew, is not a matter of the flesh. It's not cutting off a piece of flesh. It's circumcision of the heart. It says, I follow God's teachings. I believe what God says, and I act on it. 
That's what makes a person, according to Paul, an Israelite. Not just being born in a Jewish family. Very, very important. And then Paul said, well, so what? What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, the others were hardened. So now he's calling in God's sovereignty again and saying those who God chose, they have followed God, but the vast majority has not. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that see and ears, eyes that see but could not see, ears that could not hear to this very day. So there's a reason why so many Jews are not coming to Christ. It goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6, where God said, I will give them ears that do not hear and eyes that do not see the truths of God. You say, why would God do that? Why would God make it difficult for some Jews to come to Christ? It's kind of a dilemma, isn't it? Kind of a quandary. Well, Paul didn't leave us hanging. He moved on in the next movement in this chapter 11. He said, Israel's rejection of the gospel, Israel's rejection of the gospel has led to God's salvation for both Gentiles and Israel. And here's what Paul said. God's sovereign plan that Israel's rejection of the gospel would lead to ultimate blessings, Genesis chapter 12, for Israel and for the world. And, and he introduced this, this idea of this, uh, John Stott calls it a chain of blessing. He, it begins with the fact that Israel had rejected God. Let me just read it. Again, I, again Paul said, again I say, did Israel stumble so that they fall beyond recovery? In other words, is there, is there abandonment of God so final that, that they can never come back? And again, he says, Meganoido, not at all, no way. And here's, here's this chain. He says, because of their transgression, because of Israel's rejection, even of the Messiah who, stood, who, who appeared before them, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Step four, Israel's salvation means riches for the world. How much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? You say, well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let me explain. Here's the chain. God said, uh, Paul is writing under God's inspiration of God. First of all, Israel's rejection, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You may be familiar with the phrase, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. To the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Four different times in the book of Acts, it's recorded that Paul went to the Jews, presented the gospel to the Jews. They refused it. They persecuted him. He drove him out of town. They stoned him. It says when, when the Jews had totally refused and rejected the gospel, Paul turned to the Gentiles four different times. So it was the Jews' refusal that said, Paul said, I'm going to go where there's fruit. And he said the next step is when the Jews see the Gentiles coming into a relationship with God, they're envious. They say, hey, wait a minute. That's our God. What are you people doing? What are you people doing this? They're envious. So they get curious. 
And then they come to Christ. And when the Jews come to Christ, it enriches the church, it enriches the body of Christ. And the whole operation is working according to God's plan. So that's the chain of blessing. The chain of blessing. And Paul illustrated that chain of blessing, first of all, in verses 13 through 16, by saying how it gave greater meaning to his ministry. Now, this is interesting. Uh, Paul said, uh, verse, thir- verse 13 of, uh, Genesis, of, of, of Romans 11, I am talking to you Gentiles. Paul said, I'm writing to this Gentile church. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, that's why I'm writing to you, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I glory in my ministry of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. It's a wonderful privilege to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. I glory in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and see some of them come to Christ. So he said, I really have a double thing with my ministry to the Gentiles. First of all, I'm spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. Gentile people are coming into covenant relationship with, with God through Jesus. But I also am praying that as my Jewish brothers and sisters see the Gentiles having a relationship with God, that it will generate envy, that it will arouse their envy, and they too will start to investigate and come to Christ. John, God's plan of this chain of blessing Paul said, is at work through my ministry. Is this making sense? You tracking with us? Okay. <laughs> stuff, stuff. For if, uh, uh, for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If their rejection of the gospel brought more people in, think what will happen when they now come and become Christians and, and, and God's plan is fulfilled. It will be like, like uh, life from the dead. It's the world comes alive. God's will is being done in the world. And we're moving toward the culmination of the ages. Is, uh, as those of you who are taking Andrew's course on Revelation over here, uh, it, it talks about when this all comes. But part of that process of the culmination of the ages, according to Scripture, is this great influx of people of the covenant, of the Jews. And then he gives an illustration, this chain of blessing. He talks about a tree. See, he's saying when the Jews come in, their acceptance will be life from the dead. They, they will come back into the covenant that was originally made with them. In other words, the, the, the foundation of this whole Christian, this whole covenant movement of people coming to God, it began with Abraham, with the promise and the covenant to Abraham. And Abraham's descendants were heirs of that covenant. But many of those people have rejected the covenant. And we now see Gentiles coming in to this covenant community. And Paul said it's like a tree. He said if the root is holy, so are the branches. If you've got a good if you've got a good root in a tree, you're going to have good fruit on the tree. So that's the image he's using. And he said, if some of the, now verses 17 through 24, he's talking about this illustration, this picture of the tree. If some of the branches had been broken off, have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. 
So here's the picture. You've got this tree that symbolizes the covenant people of God. Some of the original branches, some of the children, the descendants of Abraham, have been broken off. They have broken themselves off because they have refused to follow God. And what the image is, then God went to a wild olive tree, cut some branches off from the wild olive tree, and grafted it into the cultivated olive tree. And those branches are now bearing fruit. So God's plan for the ages was to work through the descendants of Abraham. It's like a tree growing up. The root that feeds the tree is the Abrahamic covenant. Some of the original branches said, I want nothing to do with that. They're broken off. And then these other Gentile people came and said, well, I'll, I'll join. I'll come in. And so you've got these wild branches who are now grafted into the tree. And uh, he, he's saying now, he said, uh, after all, if, if the original, if these wild branches were able to be grafted into the tree, how much easier will it be for the original branches to be grafted in and to be accepted by the tree and to become part of the covenant community again, even though they had rejected it for so many generations? So this tree is, is God's covenant people. Some of the Jews took off. God said to bring them back. I'm going to bring Gentiles in. They will see the Gentiles functioning as a covenant community, and say, wait a minute, that's our tree. I want to be part of that. And so they come back, and they join. That picture of the olive tree. And then finally, the chain of blessing is illustrated by the mystery. Paul wrote in 25 to 32, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, this thing that was not revealed in the Old Testament. People didn't understand that what Gentiles, Gentiles and Jews worshiping together, that can't ever be. That's a great mystery. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. And Paul defined the mystery in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So let me summarize here. The, the, uh, uh, after creation, Adam and Eve, there was one kind of person on the earth, one category of people. At Genesis 12, when God made his promise, and in 15 and 17 made his covenant with Abraham, there were two kinds of people on the earth. There were Gentiles and the descendants of Abraham called Israel. So from Abraham, 2100 B.C., to the day of Pentecost, about 33 A.D., there were two kinds of people on earth, Jews and Gentiles. When the church was born, there were three kinds of people on earth. In fact, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.32, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. So you've got Jews who don't know Jesus. You've got Gentiles who don't know Jesus. Out of these two pools of people, people come to Christ, people accept Jesus, they're born again, and they're part of this third group called the church. And Paul makes it very clear over and over again that this church 
is one group of people from Jews and Gentiles. Galatians, he wrote, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, if you belong to Christ, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise of God. So whether you're Swedish, Jewish, Ethiopian, Indian, doesn't matter. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you're part of the body of Christ. You are heirs of the covenant. I know I'm going a little over here, but let me conclude with this. It's a biblical conclusion from John Stott in his uh, commentary on Romans, said, putting these truths of Romans together, it is clear that the salvation of Israel is salvation from sin through faith in Christ. It is not a national salvation, for nothing is said about either a political entity or a return to the land, nor is there any hint of a special way of salvation for the Jews which dispenses with faith in Christ. So whether a Jew or a Gentile, we come to God through Jesus Christ and a part of the church. It's not about national Israel. There is a remnant within the nation of Israel of people called followers of Jesus Christ, members of the church. A theological con conclusion, Millard Erickson, who's a good Baptist, by the way, not a Presbyterian, but here's what he says. There is a future for national Israel. They are still the special people of God. Having declared that Israel's rejection has meant the reconciliation of the world. In other words, the, all the world coming together. Paul asks, what will Israel's acceptance be but life from the dead? Life, life with Christ. The future is bright. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And Paul said that in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Yet Israel will be saved by entering the church, just as do the Gentiles. There is no statement anywhere in the New Testament that there is any other way of salvation. To sum up then, the church is the new Israel. It occupies the place in the new covenant that Israel occupied in the old. Whereas in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was peopled by national Israel. In the New Testament, it is peopled by the church. There's a special future coming for national Israel. However, through large-scale conversion to Christ and entry into the church. God has not abandoned his people. One of their own. A man named Jesus Christ died to open the doors for Jews and Gentiles to come together in this thing called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And Paul tells us here in Romans 9 that in the latter days, Jews will flood into the church and become Christian and rejoin the covenant community. They will be grafted into the tree whose root is Abraham. They are the root. We are Israel's grandchildren. 
we are Christians because of the covenant first God first made with Abraham. What should we do? Pray. <laughs> pray. Pray for Israel. Pray for the Palestinians. Pray for peace in the Middle East. Pray for the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for peace in the world. 